Everybody and welcome to Dose Nation. I'm your host Jake. Thanks for joining us. And of course, with me as always, co-host and founder of Dose Nation, James Kent. James, how are you this evening? Oh, I'm doing great. How are you doing? I am just peachy. Glad to be back on the air. I hope everybody has had a good week. But uh, let's introduce tonight's guest. Crystal Cole is the author of Lysergic, a memoir of her experiences living in a nuclear missile silo with a chemist involved in one of the largest LSD busts in U.S. history. At one point, the lab in question was making over 90% of the world's LSD supply. She is now the founder and operator of NeuroSoup, a website dedicated to drug education and consciousness exploration. And uh, you can see her NeuroSoup videos on YouTube as well. Crystal, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, great to have you here. So James is a little more informed on Lysergic than I am, unfortunately. But why don't you um, go ahead and just kind of give us an overview of of what, first of all, what the book is about and the events that took place. Sure. Um, well, I wrote the first edition of Lysergic in 2004 and got it published in 2005. And uh, so it's been, it's about a time period that's quite a few years ago. Um, but it's about a drug bust that happened, the largest LSD lab. Um, many people are probably familiar with William Leonard Picard. He was the one who's serving now life uh, in prison because of this drug bust. And so it's, it's about that. It's also about my story, um, how I encountered lots of different psychedelic substances and how my consciousness changed and and how my perspective on reality changed as a result of that. Now, how old were you when you first got involved with uh, Gordon Todd Skinner? Uh, I was uh, 18. Yeah, so you were pretty young. You you hadn't really been exposed to anything beyond uh, Topeka, Kansas, really, at that point. Is that true? Yeah, that's right. I was very sheltered. Um, I was a really a small town girl. It wasn't necessarily Speaka. It was actually Burlington, which is even smaller, like a town of 3,000 people. So it, I was, it was a small town girl and I did meet him in Speaka though. But yeah, so I, I had no, I, I didn't really even, I'd never heard of NDMA or LSD or, you know, any of the other psychedelics that I ended up using and ended up profoundly changing me for the better, I think. But so I, and I, I was very, very much a beginner to this, everything in life. And how, how old were you when the whole thing came to a screeching halt and, and the bust happened, and and it was over between you and Todd. Well, the bust happened when I was nineteen, and so, so I it was a year. Them, yeah, I had known them for about six months, um, and and so then they got then the bust happened, and then I stayed with Todd after that until I was about twenty one, um, somewhere right around in there. So it was a three year time period. Yeah, so very, very uh, small part of your your youth, but it was a uh, it was kind of a whirlwind trip, wouldn't you say? I mean, oh yeah, you're, you're, uh, yeah, they were the, they were the most uh, profound experiences of my life, as well some of the very worst experiences of my life, all in that three years. And so, what have you been doing since since the uh, since you wrote Lysergic? How what have you been doing since then? 
well, I started the NeuroSoup website, as Jake said in the introduction, and I've also been going to college. Since then, I've gotten my bachelor's degree as well as my master's degree, and now I'm getting ready to hopefully get my PhD here soon, here in the next couple of years. And so I've been busy doing all of that, and I wrote another book after the trip, and I'm writing another book now, um, MDMA for PTSD. So I've been keeping busy. <laughs> what is your uh, PhD going to be in? In psychology. Now, do you want to continue with the studying of psychedelics in um, a uh, sort of a clinical context as far as uh, treatment for various disorders go? Is that kind of... I, I would really like to study uh, psychedelics or entheogens. Um, I would also like to study consciousness research. I, I'm really interested in how uh, how we experience the spiritual. For me, when I when I did entheogens, I experienced some really s spiritual things, and so I would like to explore that and try to somehow bridge that gap between science and the scientific mindset and the spiritual mindset and, and search for those connections in the mind and in the brain that, that potentially bring about those experiences. If I can ask a follow-up question to that, if are, are you of the opinion that the spiritual experiences are external uh, and, the, and that they come from an external source or do they come from an internal source? Like, um, or are they archetypes that are manifesting themselves that are you know, deeply held within human consciousness? I believe that, that basically what you said, that the third option, um, basically that what we experience or what I experienced within theogens and I, what I call the Godhead um, or the cosmic consciousness, as it's been called, um, I believe that that's a fundamental inherent part of, of reality. And so it spans beyond what is inside of us or what is outside of us. It is the ultimate unification of all that is. It, it is timeless, infinite. It is what, it's what they explain as the Atman Brahman or, you know, the Samadhi that we reach while we meditate. That's so, what I believe. So there is no distinction then. It's just kind of, it, it, there's, it, it's basically a blending of the two. There's no, um, boundaries to it, so to speak, in the sense of internal versus external. Well, I believe that depending on the person's perspective, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Ken Wilber's integral theory. Uh, have yes. you heard of Okay, well, with, with, I really believe a lot of what Ken Wilber says. I like the way he looks at reality and, and his, how his theory sort of brings it all together. And so with an integral theory, we have different stages of consciousness, and then we access various states while we're from that stage, you know, so we interpret whatever altered state experiences that we have from our stage of consciousness, ultimately our set and everything that we know that at the time, our worldview. And so I think from that standpoint, reality can be from the scientific perspective, all in our, it, everything can be in our head, you know, our brain could be manufacturing these experiences. But on this, from another standpoint, depending on which stage of consciousness a person's at, it could be something that's external, it could be something that's more mythical, depending on the individual's interpretation. I think it's all correct, depending on, every view is correct, depending on how the individual uh, looks at reality. So yeah, we were we were talking about this with Hamilton Morris a couple of weeks ago when he was in Haiti, and he was saying that uh, the person's cultural matrix and, and their belief system sort of, and this comes from Wade Davis who was also in Haiti. Uh, they it, it sort of it expresses itself through consciousness in a way where somebody who's of a rational mind may perceive it as an internalized voice of their own, but somebody who's from a more superstitious uh, culture 
may perceive it as an actual spirit telling them something that's of, of another origin. What you're saying is essentially both of those views can be correct in, in the social context that they're perceived in. Absolutely. And, and I think that the ultimate integration of integral theory is when you move to the more integral stages of development is that you recognize that every view is valid to a certain individual depending on the, their societal norms and their, their, what they look at the world as, you know, their worldview, what they bring to the table when they're, because everything that we experience, whether it's a psychedelic experience, whether it's a meditative state, whether it's just uh, watching a movie, we are interpreting it from what we know to be true, what we know of reality. And so yeah, we have to parse, we have to parse it through our own lens. So let's jump back a little bit and talk about what was your spiritual faith growing up in that small town in Kansas? Were you pretty hardcore Christian or what was the relationship with, with spirituality like? Well, I, I, I would consider myself an atheist. Um, I did not believe that any, I didn't really care what happened when we died or what was out there. And I, I didn't care about it. I didn't really think about it, but everyone around me, all of my friends and their families were very fundamentalist Christians. So it, I, I encountered that, but I, I didn't really agree with it. I didn't like some of the, the main tenets of that. And, and I felt, I felt that they were constrained by their beliefs at the time, you know? And so, and so I was, I was a very, very atheist and, and really proud of it, I suppose. But then I, I used entheogens and I was instantly confronted by something so highly spiritual and so very real. Like it was as though, I mean, it's the most fundamental part of reality and the most real part of reality that I've ever experienced. And, and it, it really turned everything I knew upside down when it came to spirituality. And, and then I was like, well, I, you know, I, I'm the type of person that I need, need to see it to believe it. And I, I feel like I need some actual tangible proof. And, and for me, my experiences gave me that, that tangible proof. And so, so now I, I don't believe in God per se as the Christians do, whereas this entity outside of me, but, but I believe that, that we are all equal co-creators. We are all God. And deep down, you know, the, the big me perspective, we, we are all that always. That we are, that we're, did you say bad? No, we're all that. We are oh, all that sorry. is always. No, we're not all bad. Some of us might be. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I, I wasn't sure if you were saying like human, you know, that we learned that we're, I don't know. Anyway. No, she's saying that we're all that. Yeah. We're all that. So yeah, well, and it's difficult because it's difficult to explain some of this. I think for me, I think for all of us that have experienced these these stages or these these states of consciousness, it's hard to put it into words. And so it sometimes sounds vague. <laughs> no, yeah, no, so, I know. I totally understand. Yeah. So so there is. So so then would you s actually, you know what? Let me let, let me go ahead and let James ask his question first. Yeah, I was going to ask him um, when you started having these spiritual experiences since your your religious literacy was pretty stunted by the fact that you were young and you didn't have a whole lot of world experience, where did you turn to for answers when you started experimenting with drugs in the silo and, and being exposed to all of the things that you talk about in Lysergic, like DMT, Ergo Wine, the ALD52, the 2CI? I mean, you went through a, a mescaline. You did, like a, you did like almost every drug there is in a, in a very short period of time. You came to some spiritual awakenings, but how did you how did you parse those those spiritual awakenings if not through Christian values or what you had been exposed to previously? Where did you turn? 
Well, um, at the time, I did a lot of research on the different religions, and I, I really connected with Eastern religions, um, especially Buddhism. I, I found a lot of comfort in Buddhism as well, uh, having a spiritual, a daily spiritual practice of meditation. I, of course, I never meditated or anything before I used entheogens, but after that, I felt the need to. I felt that it really could help ground me, and, I, and, I've, and, I, and I've continued on with that. I, I meditate maybe not every day, but at least every other day. And, uh, and I find that it's a really helpful practice to have in life. So, um, when you're, when you're talking about like, um, opening up a spiritual side of you and you talked a little bit about Ken Wilber, um, and you talked about the, uh, the Brahmin Atman. So you, you did, you did sort of branch out into studying, you know, beyond Buddhism. I mean, you went into philosophy, you looked at, Hinduism. I'm trying to figure out where your where your where your uh, you know your source material for parsing the spiritual experience on entheogens is coming from. Is it kind of a mishmash of stuff, or did you bounce from thing to thing? Yeah, it's a lot of different stuff. What I would do is I would read even Christianity. Um, I would I, I read parts of the Bible. Um, I looked for any anything that could be relevant to me, and I took from it what I could. Anything that could help me interpret my experiences, anything that I could help understand my experiences through, whether that was another person that shared their experience in a trip report online, or whether it was something like a book from Ken Wilber. I I, I just tried to get as much information as possible and, and tried to see what was relevant to me. And, and even now, I, I look back at some of those early experiences that I had, and I'm still interpreting them. I'm still trying to figure out what some of it meant. And some of them are over 10 years, it's over 10 years later. So <laughs> I think I think that that's one of the lessons that I've learned is that with our experiences, when you when you have these, uh, these experiences, they're, they're definitely peak experiences. They stick with you and through your whole life. For me, I've slowly evolved my interpretation from them, and, I, and it means different things to me as I reach different ages or, or have different moments in my life, things that I'm struggling with. I may think back to a trip and see how that's relevant to me now. Right. And um, your academic studies um, in psychology, they're still following along the same thread of trying to find new models or new tools for understanding what's going on in consciousness. And, and spirituality. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's what was uh, my entheogenic experiences are what has brought about all of my interest in consciousness and wanting to understand the mechanisms through which all of this takes place. And uh, and, and I'm so inquisitive about it. And I, I read everything I can on neuroscience and, and all that. I'm highly interested in neuroplasticity and things like that, mirror neurons, you know. <laughs> so so I find I, I find that I, I find that entheogens have sparked all of that before I did entheogens. I was also really young and I was 18. I didn't even know what I wanted to do with my life, you know, really at that point. But, but, but I, but I believe that they've profoundly affected my life and set me on this path. I don't know where exactly it's going, but <laughs> hopefully somewhere really awesome. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your, your interest in MDMA. Your, you said you were writing a book on, on MDMA as a treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. How, what was your personal experience with MDMA like, and why did that? Why, why are you interested in that? 
Sure. Yeah, I'm interested in, in MDMA uh, as a treatment for PTSD for several reasons. Um, first, I have PTSD, although my symptoms have gotten much better. So I don't have it's not as bad as it used to be. But they say that once you get diagnosed with it, you'll probably have it for the rest of your life, even at some small level. So uh, so I'm interested in trying to help uh if, if there's any way that, that can help PTSD patients, I'm interested in exploring that and understanding that more. And, and as well, MDMA was one of the substances that I found to be the most enjoyable, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, especially illicit use can be damaging. So I want to put that in there. I'm not trying to glorify it, but, but for me, I had pure MDMA. I know that it was highly pure MDMA and, and it was, it, it was so awesome. It was, it, the feeling was ultimate bliss. You know, everyone that's ever done MDMA knows that. <laughs> that's why they call right. it ecstasy. <laughs> so, so that's, that, those are the two reasons why I'm interested in this. Now, do you do you think um, have you have you used it to treat your own PTSD, or is it is it something that you have you tried in the past and you, you you're still sort of dealing with PTSD in your own way? Yeah, no, I have not used MDMA um, to treat my PTSD. Um, and I, I feel that, especially with what research they're doing now, it's the MDMA-assisted um, psychotherapy. It's not just MDMA. So I think that for anyone just to use MDMA and think that they can heal themselves of PTSD, maybe it could help. I, I don't know. I mean, more research needs to be done on that. But I, but I think from what I've seen in the research that it, if it is going to help, it needs to be combined with psychotherapy because it's an adjunct to psychotherapy. So so for me, I wouldn't feel I wouldn't feel like I, I was necessarily helping myself unless I was doing it as a part of a therapeutic relationship, you know, w- with my psychotherapist. Right. Well, that's a good distinction to make because I think a lot of people don't don't realize that it is in an, in in a long term therapy situation where these things are administered. At well, yeah, least. it's an adjunct. You know, it's used to actually they're they're exploring the mechanisms in the brain through which it can actually help. Uh, it can help decrease your fear and things like that, so you can talk about it, so you can feel more comfortable in, in remembering the traumatic event. And so, for that, MDMA can be really assistive, or at least research is showing that it can so far. And, and I would like to qualify that the research is highly preliminary. There needs to be a lot more research studies out there to make any generalizations, but 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 the research is showing that. And and so, but there is a difference between MDMA used in a therapeutic environment that's high quality. You know, 100% for sure it's MDMA. It's only used. Let's say three times that's about the range that they're looking at it being used there's a big difference between that and, and getting some ecstasy pills on the street and taking them to try to treat your ptsd there's a big difference between that because a street ecstasy could be a whole plethora of different substances that could be highly damaging and so and so i think that it's a really important distinction to make because so i think sometimes people don't realize that Right. right. And set and setting is plays also plays a big part. I mean, you never want to be doing psychedelics by yourself and have an existential crisis. You would rather have good friends or people who care about you around you while you're having that existential crisis. It's a lot. The outcomes are a lot more beneficial when you have other people around. Yes. And, and train trained therapists that know how to work with the substance and know how to work with people who are, who are dealing with difficult and really fearful emotions. It's important. I have a question for you. I think I saw one of your videos a while back um, where you were talking about telepathy and you had had a telepathic experience with yes. some friends of yours. 
What are your thoughts on telepathy? Because I get asked this question all the time, and I don't really have a very good answer for it. But uh, you're you you had a pretty strong experience, and I, I was wondering if you ever if you ever think about you know yeah. trying to create some of that. I do. People ask me that and they, they're like, well, are you sure you weren't just so high that you guys were actually talking to each other, but you were so high that you didn't realize it, you know, and you kind of um, hallucinated or fooled yourself into believing that that you were really communicating and, or that you were not communicating, you know, when you were. And, 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 and there was three of us there and all of us after the experience, we tested out, we, we weren't saying anything. You could see each other's mouths. You could see where we were. So we weren't, you could see that we weren't talking to each other. <laughs> so we were, we were, we were tripping very hard, but we weren't so out of our minds that we couldn't see each other sort of. I mean, there was lots of layers undulating psychedelic patterns and all of that going on, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, right. <laughs> but we could see each other and, and, and the memory is so very clear in my mind. And, and, and but we would test it, you know, it was, it was so, first of all, we would start laughing. That's how it first started out. We were just laughing so hard and we were like, you know, do I hear you? And it was like, it was like, if you talk to yourself in your head, you know, cause we all do that. We all are thinking about right. something, we'll say something to ourselves in our head. It was just like that. But instead of my own voice, hearing my own voice, I would hear their voices too and I would feel their emotions too. And so it wasn't just, it wasn't just like on, on TV, like a sci-fi show. You'll hear, you'll see them hearing the other person's voice or something. But, but this was not only that, but it was experiencing their consciousness too. So I could feel like I felt um, what their, let's say their arms, what they were touching. I could feel that. I could feel everything. It was like, it was like our consciousness were molded into one. And so, and so I could feel all of that. And then we would do one thing, like we, we would test each other. Like one of us would think, raise your left hand or something. And so we'd think for a while and laugh about, well, which is left and right. Cause we were pretty high. And, and then one of us would, and then we'd raise the hand, you know? And so, and so we tried this out and the next day we're like, was that real? And to me, it seemed real, <laughs> but but, I, but I'm questioned a lot on whether we were just so high that we, we couldn't know <laughs> that we were talking. But it was only that it was only that one time that you had that experience. No, I, I experienced it several other times, but it was only been oh, a handful of times that, that I've experienced that. Um, and and it, it, I've tried that after I after I experienced that the next time I, I tripped, I tried to experience it again. I wanted to experience it so bad because it was it was one of the most awesome things to experience. And I and I couldn't we couldn't make it happen. We tried and we tried. We kind of sat there and we're like, okay, let's hear what each other are thinking and all. And we couldn't make make it happen. So I don't know how it happened or if there's a way to increase the likelihood of it happening but it's just sort of i mean for me it was a fluke situation that would happen sometimes and i always felt really blessed when it happened <laughs> you you said you you would feel really blessed when when certain things happened yes i want to I, I want to explore that topic a little more because i think that I, I think it's interesting um because you know you hear a lot of people throughout their lives talking about, you know, it, 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 it's almost like peaks and valleys where they feel blessed and then all of a sudden they feel like they've fallen from grace. And have you ever had any experiences like that, whether in the psychedelic realm or, or, or I mean, outside of it? And also, in addition, is that feeling of grace, does it, is it coming from somewhere or is it, you know, where, where is that feeling coming from or is it just situational? Well, yeah, I think some of it is situational, um, but I've definitely life is a roller coaster, right? There's ups and downs, and, right? 
I mean, some of them are really high and some of them are so low that you're at rock bottom and life really sucks. And so I've had, I've experienced both sides of it. And, but I think for me, for the peak experiences, those blessed moments, it's not just that it's the situation, but it's also this feeling or this, it's being in touch with what I believe that we all truly are, that oneness that is, that exists inside all of us. Because, because that to me is the ultimate, most peaceful lovingness that there is. And so, and so of course it's going to be very happy. And, and, and I think that it, it's, it's at one, you know, at one point it's, it's in us and it's outside of us. There's no difference. There's no, there's no separation. It, it just is. So there is, go ahead, James. Sorry. Well, I was going to say this. Uh, I was I was interested in these in this idea of there's there's special moments in your life where you get on a high or you get on a roll or you are able to you know make a telepathic contact with your friends and then the next day or a day or later a few days later you try to get on that same roll again and it just can't happen because the magic isn't there. I'm really interested in figuring out what what is it that makes those those magical moments. Uh, we talked a little bit about this with Dennis, and that's what, that was one of Terence McKenna's big uh, his obsessions was finding these 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 moments of novelty and time where that magic can come through. Uh, how many times in your life do you think that you've you've been in those experiences, those peak experiences, where you felt like that magic was coming through you? Well, I, I think there's been a lot. I, I, I've almost all of my entheogenic journeys have been like that. I felt like it's not necessarily that they're magical in the in the mythical magical sense, but but there is this this overarching love and 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 everything feeling. But you've <laughs> had, but you've had you've, you've had experiences where you've you've tried taking drugs and you didn't feel that. Is isn't that isn't that true? I mean, you've had disappointing experiences, I'm guessing, or have well, all of them. Well, sure. I've had experiences that are really uncomfortable and they're really scary. Um yeah, I, I think we all have we've all had bad trips. <laughs> Anyone who says they haven't had a bad trip, I always suspect, you know, I always wonder if they're really being honest with themselves cuz I think we've all had bad moments and trips. But I think that one of the things is is that even in the bad moments, I've usually always been able to turn that experience around to where there was at least some positive moment. And even the ones that didn't have that later afterward, I would reflect upon them and I would be like, well, it really taught me a lot. I learned a lot. And then you always heard that, you know, the, the worst ones teach you the most. So, so, I mean, even in these moments of uh, anxiety and, you know, kind of depression and in these bad trips, I mean, there is still something of value to be made, which I think that, that says something for the overall experience as well, you know, for, you know, that you know even even through the bad there is still a learning process that is taking place there and uh you know even looking back you know there are things that you can say okay i i learned something maybe not i i may never i you know i didn't enjoy myself but i learned something well yeah and sometimes uh, sometimes that was my goal of of using entheogens well i guess a lot of times really was to learn something i mean of course i wanted to experience i wanted to have fun and i wanted to you know, experience altered states that I'd never experienced before and push my boundaries beyond what I knew before and try to experience what reality is and all of that. But, but ultimately I, I really wanted to learn something from it. I wanted to learn something about myself and, and about reality. 
And so I would open myself up to that and try to experience and take it all in as much as possible, the good and the bad. And, and, and in a lot of ways, that's analogous to life, right? And we, our lives have a lot of, they're a mixed bag. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of good things and there's a lot of bad things and, and you're going to learn from all of it. And it's, and hopefully if, if, if you're travel, I, I think, you know, if you're traveling life down the right path, you're going to learn from it and it's, you're going to help allow it to help you become a better person. And, and I think for a lot of people, they, you know, some, some people don't, don't like to reflect on them. They don't like to, to, to look back and say, is there something, you know, look, we're on this path, right? And, you know, is there something I need to change? A lot of people don't want to do that. And that, you know, and that goes for bad trips as well. A lot of people don't like to go back and re-examine that sometimes. Well, yeah, I think it's an important thing, integration. I think it's a very important thing when you're looking at the entheogenic experience, whether it's a bad trip or a good trip, because... I mean, some people, maybe they're just using them to get high or whatever. But for me, I'm really using them to make myself a better person, to try to do something. That way I can do something in this world that's a positive thing. I want to put what I've learned into positive action in the world. And so, and so, of course, integration and integrating the things that you learn into your life and having that empower you to become a better person is crucial. And so, and I, that's one of the things that I, that I hope to do with NeuroSoup and, and, and the different videos that I make and different things that I write, like when I wrote in the NeuroSoup trip guide, I hope that people will see that. And, and, the, and those people that aren't considering trying to integrate their experiences, maybe after thinking about some of those issues, maybe that they'll consider doing that. How do you get a lot of feedback from people who see your videos or who, who are familiar with NeuroSoup? Yeah. Yeah. There's always, there's lots of comments on YouTube. If you've got, well, sure. I'm I'm just wondering, (laughs) I'm wondering if you get contacted by people who, um, like maybe have maybe just found psychedelics for the first time and are maybe scared or have had unusual experiences and don't know what to make of it or, you know, who come to you with, with big questions or is it more people who just kind of stumble upon you and they already know what's going on? They're just looking for more information. I think it's a bit of both. I get a lot of people who email with questions and I try to answer as many of the emails um, as I can. Um, and I get also get people that have been using indigence for years and, and they'll email me too. And, and of course I get emails from both sides. Some people love what I do and think it's a great thing. Some people hate what I do. (laughs) I call those my haters. (laughs) I get lots of those on YouTube. (laughs) Anyone that's been on YouTube knows that, you know, you get everyone that does videos gets the haters on there. And so, uh, so I have both. There's both sides. (laughs) Well, at least you have some experience. Um, And, and so you, you were lucky enough to find somebody who, who introduced you to the world of psychedelics who had access to good drugs. I mean, good, clean chemicals. What do you think about, um, you know, the research chemical scene that's going on now? Do you get people who are contacting you about, you know, methadrone and whatever might be out there now, as opposed to the substances that you're more familiar with? Yeah, I do. And I, I've been doing lots of videos on research chemicals, suggesting for people not to use research chemicals. Usually I don't, I don't make suggestions either way, whether a person should use something, whether they shouldn't use something. I think that each individual ultimately makes their own decisions about what they put into their bodies. But, but with research chemicals, I, I mean, I've done research chemicals in my past. So, uh, but, but I mean, for me, I, I don't use them anymore because I've realized that 
it's a really risky proposition when it comes to your health. If you don't know what the side effects are in humans, you don't know what, what the LD50 is, you know, you don't know if it's addictive. So I don't know if it could be a carcinogen. There's all right. sorts of different things that it could happen. And I, I just think it's so unsafe. And, and maybe some of them in the end will prove to be perfectly safe. I mean, LSD was a research chemical back in the day. And now we know that it's relatively safe. At least we know what the side effects are. Like you could develop HPPD in a very small percentage of the population. We know what the side effects are. And if you take LSD, you can at least do research on the internet or, or in journal articles, and you can find out what your risks are and then choose to go ahead with it if, if you feel that you know, it's the, the positives outweigh the negatives. But with research chemicals, uh, there isn't the information out there. There's anecdotal reports of people taking them on forum websites, and, and those are not valid ways to do research. <laughs> you know, I mean, they could anyone could just get on there and lie about what they took, or they don't know. It, they have no one, not 100% proof of exactly what they took. They could have gotten a different chemical from the research chemical supplier that was mislabeled, and then be reporting on it on a forum site. So, I, I really, I, I really. If anything, I, I suggest for people to stay away from research chemicals, if at all possible. Well, one of the big issues that I that I've noticed and and you know and I've seen this all over is that people will you know take take something you know some research chemical that that was, that was mass produced in China and they'll put it on blotter paper and they'll say, well, this is LSD, and they'll go out to a show or they'll go to their friends and tell them that it's LSD, even though it's not. And these these other people really have no way of knowing you know, what exactly they're taking. They think they're taking LSD, but really they're taking, you know, I don't know, 25CN, whatever, you know, some kind of... It's 2CIN bomb or something right, like that. Right, exactly. And and they don't, and they, th you know, and they, and they take, you know, higher and higher doses of it because they think, oh, it's only LSD. But, it, you know, I was... I well, yeah, one of the things they're distributing it as are LSD nose drops. <laughs> and and, and real, I have this right on the homepage of neurosoup.com. It's been on there for the last month or so. And, and for anyone that's listening to this, if you hear someone that has an LSD nose drop where they're actually telling you to lean back and they're dripping, dropping the the, L, the, the liquid supposed LSD into your nose, it, it, it's it's one of the NVOME chemicals, research chemicals. You know, it's not L, LSD has never been distributed in a nose drop, at least that I know of. And so and so if you if you see that behind suspect of it being an NBOME research chemical. Yeah, and then those are very, those are super potent. Um, those are super potent analogs of, of already known. And the thing about the NBOME chemicals is that they're usually high-powered phenethylamines. They're not high-powered tryptamine like LSD is. So they're, they're much stronger and more effective on the adrenal system. Uh, and they can cause like super high blood pressure and heart racing and the other kind of symptoms that you wouldn't normally see with LSD. Um, and those are the ones that, that cause panic attacks and just, you know, people overdosing, becoming unconscious. So, yeah, it's really scary. I, I, and, and, you know, I think it all boils down to what's going on with our laws in this country, because uh, it's like our government has has imposed these these laws on us that are that are taking away our personal freedoms. And but then and they're saying, well, this is for your health. But then things like the NBOME class of research chemicals, they're quasi legal gray area. And so people are able to order them on the Internet. But then more safer things like psilocybin mushrooms. 
which should, in my opinion, should be legalized. <laughs> you know, it, 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 you have severe penalties if you grow them or if you possess them or use them. And so I think that this is just showing that there's a major problem with our laws and the way we view drugs and the way we view psychedelics. And it's sad that, that people are choosing to go get the research chemicals, and especially drug dealers that are mis saying that taking the NBOME and saying that it's LSD and distributing it. I think it's sad that we we're going to those links to be able to get around the drug laws. And, and, and for me, this is almost the, the, the overdoses and the things that are happening in regards to the research chemicals. To me, it, it's a call to action that, that we need to do something different in this country about the drug laws and drug scheduling. And we need to start reevaluating drugs and saying, look, you know, are they really harmful? Are they really addictive? Because LSD isn't addictive, <laughs> but it's still classified as a schedule one. And so I think that we need to do some major reevaluation uh, of the way we view these things. And a little bit of that is happening now with the, with the legalization of marijuana and the um, resurgence of research in psychedelic therapy or psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Um, but it's slow. Change is always slow. It's a lot easier to make a law than it is to undo a law. Well, yeah, and, and I wonder, you know, I wonder if any, I hope that, that all the research with MDMA and PTSD, with LSD, uh, so the psilocybin studies that they're doing, I hope that the research leads to some reform. But I wonder, how long is it really going to take? <laughs> because because the, the minds of most people, if you if you ask the, the average person that's not, that, that's not maybe someone listening to this podcast, <laughs> you know, especially the ones that live around me in Kansas, the, the very fundamentalist, Republican mindset. If you ask them anything about LSD or psilocybin or MDMA, it's instantly, they're like, oh, it's worse than heroin or it's bad as heroin. It's this really bad drugs. You don't want to do that. And they think it's just a horrible thing. And so I think that in order to change the laws, since we're, the public is electing these officials to the, in order to change the laws, we have to change public opinion in a major way. And not just to those of us who are, who are, who are sympathetic towards these substances because we've used them and, and we see their potential, but to those members of our society that that are convinced by all of the anti-drug propaganda that they've they've been exposed to their whole lives well what about this um some people have said that the tv show will and grace helped destigmatize homosexuality in america culture how about we can get a tv show on the air about a group of people who do psychedelics and uh we can destigmatize all of the chemicals that way by putting it on people's tv well, we, we'll go for that. I, don't, I think that's great. I, I don't want to say it hasn't already been done, but I mean, if you look at like, um, you know, I mean, if you have a, I don't know, one of, one of my favorite shows, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Archer, it's on FX. Yeah, I've seen it. You know, you know, Krieger and the LSD thing, you know, I mean, people are aware of it and they're doing it in, in kind of a comical way. So I think it that's is being true. presented to younger Alex people. Kind of came out on many episodes of The Simpsons. Oh, yeah. Had, uh, have had psychedelic themes in them. I mean, you know, you know, American Dad, Family Guy, all of them that have have in some way, sh shape, or like, like I mean, for example, like uh, Seth MacFarlane, one of the characters in American Dad, uh, Jeff, he is, you know, he's a stoner, and that's what he does, and you know, that's his kind of, and I mean, it's a satirical portrayal, but people are aware of it, you know, and if they right, under and, and if they understand the humor of the show, they realize that it's satire, it's making fun of. The way main, you know, the mainstream looks at these people. Well, right. We and marijuana was stigmatized for many years, and then we had characters like Spicoli in Fast Times and Ridgemont High, 
And then in the 90s, you had the kids on that 70s show, Smoking Pot, on, on air. They, I mean, they never actually showed the pot, but they did a, have, have episodes surrounding pot. And now pot is becoming destigmatized, and it's legal in, in, in some places. And it's well, it's destigmatized legal. maybe in your areas, but where I live, cannabis is considered a really bad drug, and they will put you in jail for long, long times if you're caught with it. So I, again, I think that I think that it depends on where you are. But I agree in California or uh, places in Washington State, uh, Colorado. Of course, it's better. The attitudes are much more uh, progressive, but but places like Kansas aren't <laughs> at all. <laughs> That's crazy. I mean, it's so funny that we live in the same country and the, the differences in the laws between where you are and I am and where Jake is are so vastly different. Yeah, I mean, even the medical marijuana programs, you know, within the state, you know, is, like in New Jersey, you can't get it for any kind of psychiatric disorders. But in, uh, you know, California, you can for anxiety and depression and things like that. I mean, even even the discrepancies within the states is amazing. And some, you know, like you said, in Kansas, some of these states are, you know, it's it, it's considered almost as bad as heroin or cocaine or something like that. Yeah. Oh, it is here. It is. Just the other day, I saw a news report how they were bragging that they busted someone with, I think it was 60 pounds of, of marijuana or something. And they were setting it all out and they had it all packaged up in plastic wrapped bricks. And they were all proud of it. They had the law enforcement there and were very much saying that they did, did something to uphold the law. And and, and maybe they did. I, you know, I, 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 I'm not, I'm reserving judgment as to whether or not it should be distributed illicitly like that. You know, I think, I think that maybe the way of legalizing it and having more control over how it's distributed to ensure the quality of the product and keep uh, big crime organizations out of it is probably, is really a good thing. So, but, but <laughs> I, 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 they were the views through which Kansans look at it are definitely different than, than in other more democratic states <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean uh look at amsterdam or somewhere like that you know uh th that's there i i i think uh, wasn't psilocybin i don't know if it was decriminalized or they sold it as truffles or something like that over there. it was it was legal for a while um mushrooms you could buy at head shops i'm not exactly sure what the legality was but i think it was as long as they weren't prepared or you know um, as long as they weren't Somebody was extracting psilocybin from them and selling it as a as a drug as opposed to a dried mushroom. It was legal, and then somebody jumped off a bridge, apparently on mushrooms, a tourist, and uh, a few months later, that was all over. No more, no more mushrooms, it and it really them. killed a huge market in uh, that had sprouted up for for psilocybin mushrooms. They had just warehouse-sized sheds, hangar-sized sheds growing psilocybin mushrooms feeding this market. I think they were illegal in the UK for a while, too. I mean, there was this weird loophole in the legality that if it was just a dried mushroom and it wasn't a prepared drug, then it was legal. But I think that loophole got closed uh, maybe 10 years ago at this point. So do you guys think psilocybin mushrooms should be legalized here in the U.S.? I don't know. I mean, I think low-dose psilocybin is fine, but when people start taking high doses of psilocybin, really crazy things can happen. Uh, and people need to be, you know, <laughs> people need to be aware of how crazy things can get when you take too many mushrooms because it's just, it's just over the top crazy as far as I can tell. Uh, mushrooms are crazy in a way, are crazy in a way that LSD isn't for me. Um, 
And I don't know exactly why that is, but it's well, have so you ever tried taking five hundred mics of LSD? <laughs> oh yeah, well yes, but every time I do LSD, I feel like I'm doing LSD. Whenever ever I do mushrooms, I feel like the mushrooms are doing me. Yeah, it's a good way to describe it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it's a very creepy, scary kind of feeling, and I cannot, I can't ever really shake it when I do them. Um, and the higher the doses, just the stranger it gets. So. Uh, I, I don't really recommend them in high doses for anybody, but, what? uh, but I think in small doses, they're perfectly fine and they're very enjoyable. I mean, as for the legality of it to me, you know, look, let people do what they want. I mean, to be honest, I, 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 I would have absolutely no problem with it. Uh, I, I'm kind of not libertarian in the kind of right wing capitalistic America, you know, in that sense. But I'm libertarian in the sense of, you know, look, pe- let people do what they want. Let people make their own mistakes to it to a certain extent, you know. So I, I mean, and, and especially when it when it comes to something like drugs, you know, people can make their own decisions. Well, yeah, I think people should be allowed to do what they want as long as it's not harming someone else. And and whether or not a person takes psilocybin. It's if it, if it harms themselves, if they take too much of it, like you said, James, you know, if they take too much and then they have a really, really fear driven experience, they it's harm psychotic themselves. Psychotic reaction. But, but yeah, they didn't the harm psychotic episode. Is, yeah. Yeah. Well, if someone has a psychotic episode on mushrooms, they well, I, I have read stories of people who do who do um, horrible things on high dose mushroom trips, um, either jumping off of things or hurting people or. Uh, grizzly things and uh it's it's you know mushrooms are one of those are something that i respect like uh like big waves in the ocean i used to surf and body surf but if a wave is too big i would just stay away from it because i didn't want it to kill me and i feel like mushrooms are sort of like big wave drugs if you take if you take them in high doses um they you, they can pummel you if you if, you, if you're not ready for the experience and uh, <laughs> you just need to you just need to either have somebody with you or um, you know be in a controlled setting if you're going to do a high dose. I mean, I guess of any psychedelic, really, because you never know you never know what what the exact tiny little bit it's going to make you not rational anymore is. Uh, so yeah, I mean, legal psychedelics is a weird one because not many people. When you talk to people about recreational drugs, a lot of people are scared of psychedelics and they don't really want to do them recreationally. But there is also this therapeutic aspect and this very hedonistic aspect to it. So only a certain percentage and a certain type of person is drawn to them to begin with. Um, I wish that there were a religion in in our country because the religious use of entheogens, it's legal for several different religions here to use entheogens that are scheduled one for everyone else. And I wish that there were a more accessible uh, entheogenic religion. And then that would be the way that we could have these substances and experience them legally and safely. You know, like the Native American church has peyote and which the active constituent mescaline and that's schedule one for everyone else. No one else can. We can't take peyote. But but if you're a member of a Native American church, you can and you have safe environment to do so. And so I, I think that if there's anything reformed when it comes to laws in the, in the near future, I would I, I would highly like to see some, an entheogenic religion that was accessible to everyone, not not just if you're Native American or or and it's not as as some of the some of the interviews and things that I've read about um, the other religions like the Santo Daime and the UDV, they, they seem a little dogmatic, you know, and a lot of people are turned off by that. And so I think that it'd be nice if there was a, an entheogenic religion. What do you guys think about that? 
I, we actually had a, uh, James and I had a discussion about this earlier in the week, didn't we? Uh, I think it was yesterday. Yeah, we yeah. were talking about the League of Spiritual Discovery. Jake wanted to uh, create a new entheogenic church where people could get turned on, and uh, I said it's already been tried a couple times. There was Tim Larry's uh, League of Spiritual Discovery, the LSD, back in the '60s, and there was another church in New York that I, the name is blinking. It's blanking on me. But when five meo DMT was still legal, they had a church where you could go and you could take the you could take the five meo DMT sacrament and be exposed to the grand mystery. And they weren't very dogmatic about it. They were just very weird. No, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about creating an entheogenic church with like a code of canon law and like we have scholars who, you know, go, go to these like monasteries and study like, you know, and take entheogens and, you know, I mean, I have a whole vision for this. Well, well what about, what about using the system of, of the, what about using the system of the Unitarian Church? I don't know. The Unitarians well, might be very close to psychedelics, but but they already uh, are widely, uh, you know, inviting of all different faiths. Why not? Why not building build some aspect of the Unitarian Church into using psychedelics? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking of like basing it in like uh, you know, you know, you know, uh, either Eastern or Western right, like you know. Uh, uh, church, you know, structure or whatever, and you could have like monasteries and you know things like that where people can go and spend years and study and like become masters of the mo- you know, of the entheogenic uh, ritual or whatever, you know, kind of thing. But yeah, that would be great. No, 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 no. I mean, I know. I mean, those are called cults. No, 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 no. But I mean, I'm talking about like you know, with like with like a set monastic tradition, like you know, as opposed to kind of like, all right, well, 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 you know, here's here's like one crazy cult leader, but like you know, the monastic community would just like they wouldn't, you know, a regular abbey, you know, elect elect a member of the brothers to become the abbot and run it, and then when he dies, somebody oh, else is elected. I see. So you, there'd be some sort of uh, institutional oversight to make sure there weren't like crazy Charles Manson madmen running around. Right, right, right. Exactly. So that the people who are actually like you know coming to positions of authority or you know or something like that are not Charles Manson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, Charles Manson doesn't end up, you know, the, you know, the bishop of the entheogenic church of New York, you know, or something like that, you know, uh, or something crazy. Oh God. You know, and then, and then there's like a big scandal and, you know, no, I, but, <laughs> but no, I mean, think about it. Monasteries dedicated to the preservation and kind of the study event, you know, where people could just go in solitude with, you know, within this kind of monastic community and explore that. I think that would be a really, really interesting thing, but with some kind of democratic oversight so that it doesn't become a cult. And there's a little bit of that going on in uh, in South America with the ayahuasca church, but it's very fused with the folk Catholicism that that uh, goes with those cultures. So you've got this sort of new age folk Catholicism, shamanic blend. Yeah. That's becoming kind of a, it's, 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 it's a religion. I think that a lot of young people dabble with, even if they haven't taken ayahuasca, they, they express the uh, urge to want to go to South America and take ayahuasca as a spiritual pursuit. Oh yeah. Yeah. So so there's, for me, from a health situation, I that's I personally have not gone down to do ayahuasca, and I don't know if I would. I I'm a little hesitant because a lot of the shaman, I mean, like they'll they'll say that they're qualified, but are they really? I mean, do they really understand how MAOIs affect the body? And and with the recent death down there uh, <laughs> of the person, I mean, you know, that had went down there. You guys are you are you familiar with that? Or oh yeah, you know, we we discussed it on a previous podcast. Yep. Yeah. 
Yeah. So for but me, you, I mean, that's just evidence to support the the caution, maybe, especially with, with ayahuasca and, and, and how MAOIs can be dangerous because there's interactions. If you have any tyramine in your system. Right. And you, but like I said, you were very lucky to be introduced to entheogens by somebody who were, was giving you very clean samples. There's a lot of people who don't know where to go to find that. And the only thing that they can think of is to go to South America and take ayahuasca with a shaman as opposed to, you know, looking for something on the street or at a club or from a drug dealer. Uh, I, it's the closest thing we have to what Jake said, like a monastery where people can go and study and do these things in nature. It's not ideal, but when you talk about an entheogenic church, I think there already is kind of an ad hoc entheogenic church, and we do already have these sort of monastery places where people can go. It's not institutionalized. It's very sort of fly by the seat of your pants. Yeah, and that's I what I'm saying. Like, I, I mean, think something is forming. I think something is forming. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, I feel like I that that I'm one of the few people in uh, in this whole kind of community that that kind of lends credence to the, you know, I'm I'm big into the whole Western kind of philosophy because I think that there's, you know, there's some kind of value in in the oversight of an institution. Um, you know, if it's run properly, you know, right. Um, because, you know, again, and I, you know, and a lot of people don't, don't like that because they like the idea of kind of, okay, we're all free and we're all doing whatever we want. But at the same time, you know, if you had, you know, as I had suggested with that kind of monastic institutionalized oversight, it might be safer. It might be better. It might be better for the initiates. It would be better for, you know, for a lot of people because there would, it would be an environment where, you know, you're not beholden to a single cult leader, and there's some, at least some kind of standard that goes across the board where you could go to any one of these kind of monastic, you know, entheogenic retreats or whatever, and you could basically find the same thing. Because if you, I mean, if you go to a, you know, a Buddhist monastery, you know, or sorry, a, a, a Benedictine monastery in Scotland, and you go to one in France, or you go to one in Italy, they all follow the same tradition, basically, you know, the same set of rules. Whereas well, whatever, if you go to a different shaman in Peru, you're going to get something different depending right, on who you go to. Right, exactly. But if you go to a Benedictine monk and you ask him, what, you know, what, what is your tradition, right? I mean, every Benedictine monk will tell you, well, we fought, you know, we're part of the Order of St. Benedict and we follow his teachings and so on and so forth. Or if you go to a Greek Orthodox monk and you ask him the same thing, well, we follow the teachings of St. Basil and so, you know, that kind of thing, you know? Well, I think that there are direct effects of being a part of an entheogenic religion versus not. Um, whenever I was in my undergraduate, I did a research study where I interviewed Native American church members and that used peyote on a regular basis. And then people who used peyote just as an illicit use, you know, not as a part of the Native American church. And I looked at their well-being and, and the well-being of the Native American church members was significantly higher than it was for the people that were not Native American church members. And another interesting thing was that was that anyone who used peyote had a higher sense of well-being than the average person so <laughs> that's saying something good for peyote but but it's even better for those people that were native american church members and so for me you know why don't we all have access to a situation to where we can get the most optimal benefits out of having these experiences and so for me that that's one of the reasons why i think that we definitely need to have some sort of an organized entheogenic religion that's widely acceptable here, you know, even more so than, than the Native American Church or the branches of the UDV that exist in this country, or or the the um, Santo Daimi. Right, and I mean, if if someone actually sat down and took the 
and took the time to make I don't know some kind of standard some kind of standard right or or something like that where it could be applied you know across the board it might it might help promote some, you know a, you know a national or, or or international movement because instead of having these little kind of sects that are springing up all over the place that don't have a relation to each other you have a certain set of you know ideas or philosophies or rules that you're going to go by to kind of govern the international movement you know and i think i think i should mention the council on spiritual practices here because that's kind of what they've been working on for the last i'm sure they've been around for about 20 years now uh is trying to advance the notion of maybe not creating a universal entheogenic religion but incorporating entheogens into existing world religions as as a as an adjunct to um, spiritual practice in any setting, but I mean, what well, yeah. what Western religion would I mean? Could you name one? Do you th- that you think would accept a kind of entheogenic yeah, spinoff? Why, yeah, we need to storm the Unitarians, is what. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's what I'm saying. I think the Unitarian Church might some branches of it at least might be open to it. I, I think that would be the first the first place to go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you can't go to you know uh, the Church of England or the or the Catholic Church or something like that and ask them, oh, well, can we start an entheogenic monastery? They'll be like, what? <laughs> you know, <laughs> what are maybe you asking me? Fifty years, maybe in fifty years. Maybe in 50 years, you know, who knows? I mean, but t- today, definitely not. You know. Well, speaking of the Council of Spiritual Practices, I read a code of ethics that they had for practitioners who were um, trying to use uh, psychedelics uh, to like shamans. And, and I don't remember exactly what the title of it was, but, but I found it to be really well written and, and, and it was really to the point. So if you guys haven't seen that, I, I think that that was a really good creation of the Council of Spiritual Practices. And it is, in the, I think, it's in the step in the right direction. If, if we could at least have some sort of a code of ethics that people could conform to when, when they're using these substances or distributing them it, it would be a really i think it'd be a step in the right direction and you mentioned the unitarian churches now i'm not as familiar with them i i'm not all that familiar either i have attended a few uh, different services at the unitarian church um where i used to live in kansas city um, they had different buddhist um, meditation practices and things so it wasn't just they had some christian-based ceremonies and some ceremonies for other spiritual practices. And so they seemed a lot more open to considering other faiths and considering the validity of other faiths. I know some of the more fundamentalist Christians, they, they are unwilling to even consider that another opposing viewpoint of what happens with our, with God or what happens when we die, all of that, you know, our spiritual beliefs that it could have any validity. So, so I think that they're, at least from what I understand, more open to it. So if there's any of them that, that might be open to it, open to trying to incorporate psychedelic in some form, maybe maybe we could get with some Unitarian church in California or Colorado or Washington State. <laughs> yeah, and 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 that would probably be the best place to go in the end, um, because there really is nowhere else that has that kind of spiritual openness, I suppose. So, Crystal, uh, why don't you tell us uh, where we can find some of your work? Uh, you know, give us your websites where we could find your books and so on. Sure. Um, neurosoup.com and my books are all available on amazon.com. I also have a personal website, crystalcole.com. It has my books on there as well and my artwork, um, things like that. So that's, those are the best places to go. Thank you so much for joining us. Make sure you check out Neurosoup. Uh, become a member over there. 
Uh, there's some some great information, some great videos there that you can check out because uh, you have a members only section. So yes, I do. Definitely uh, go ahead and join that. It's worth it. Uh, I know that I did. It's worth it. So any uh, final comments, James? No, it was great talking to you, Crystal. It's fun to catch up. Yeah, it was good talking to you too. All right. Well, uh, thanks for joining us, everybody. Uh, I'm your host, Jake, and of course, again, founder and co-host of Ghost Nation. Uh, I want to thank our guest, Crystal, for uh, Crystal Cole, for coming on tonight. Remember to check out NeuroSoup.com.